my history, I've never heard anybody preach or teach through minor prophets. Some of them have been referenced. And um, the last book I did was Hosea. And Hosea and Amos mesh in pretty well together. Um, once Wayne gets recovered from his surgery, he's going to be doing Micah, I believe. So um, I decided to, uh, I said if anybody's missing for a week or two or whatever of the teachers, I'd fill in and do Amos as we went. And uh, I'll tell you, I'm finding out that just doesn't really fit my, uh, my whole mentality. I, I, I get into something, I like to get engrossed and stay with it. So jumping in and out might be a little bit of a, a flaw on the plan, but that's what we're going to be doing. So we're in Amos, and we're going to be looking at Amos chapter uh, 2 today, if you want to turn there. And um, uh, just a little bit of thought as we go to prayer here. Um, we have uh, Steve Nelson in the hospital. My understanding is it's still unscheduled for surgery on the 23rd, which would be, today's the 21st, isn't it? It'd be Tuesday. <clears throat> and uh, that'll be a blessing. I'm sure it'll be a, a recovery time that uh, is somewhat difficult, but it'll be a blessing, and we can pray that that would be successful to the point that he will not uh, have a continuation of pain. When Pastor Turbot was here last summer, and, and he, they lived with us for six weeks, and he had back surgery, he came in with just excruciating pain, and thankfully, after about two days and after the surgery and the recovery started lessening, the nerves started calming down because they had the rotor out all around all those nerves in L4, 5, 6, and 7 uh, that were encased in, in calcium, you know, and they, they got that all chipped out. And uh, he's been pain-free, so it's been a real blessing. That's what we hope for Steve. And then Jerry Carlson um, and Connie, his wife, and he's been in, he's been in uh, 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 God's work and service his whole life. And um, he's now at Pine Haven. And he told me yesterday, he said, I said, do you want me to have some people visit you? He says, well, yeah. But he said, I'll tell you what, they're working me so hard, I'm absolutely exhausted by the time I get to the end of the day. <laughs> so he said, maybe short visits. And I was thinking of Abe and Marilyn, you know, they've known him for many years. Uh, so uh, that's available. Weekends are, now I was there yesterday when Doug and Marie McLaughlin came down. Some of you would know him, he's preached here. And uh, so Jerry's doing very well, and we pray that he can stay away from any kind of infection and issues like that. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for the day. We thank you, Lord, for the beautiful uh, sunshine, the beauty of seeing uh, crops uh, coming up in the ground, and uh, the promise of uh, another year of harvest and, and life in the plant and animal world. And we thank you most of all, Lord, for your saving grace that puts us in the uh, eternal world of life. And uh, we just pray, Father, you bless Jerry and his recovery, be with Steve through uh, his uh, surgery coming up, and uh, bless him with a, a, a good uh, surgical team and a good recovery time and a pain-free pain uh, follow-up after that. We just pray that uh, he'll be careful in how he uses his body afterwards and uh, lessens the workload that he uh, likes to carry. And uh, Lord, we thank you for Kay Johnson and her successful knee replacement surgery and her recovery, which is going well, and the help she has with her sisters there. And uh, uh, we thank you, Lord, that uh, we have the means of our church service being uh, uh, on, online and that these people are able to uh, observe and participate in that manner. And what a blessing that is to them. We ask you now to bless this time that we have together. Bless our study of Amos. And Lord, that we would uh, reap something from uh, uh, what you've given us in your word today to apply to our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in Amos. In a little review time here, uh, where Amos is uh, located in the timeline, we see here the division of the kingdom 
which was somewhere around 920 B.C., uh, where the northern kingdom split off, and we have Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, and the southern kingdom, Jeroboam the first in the northern kingdom. And with that, uh, as we'll see some today, Israel is, is in, you know, talking about the northern tribe now. When I talk about Israel today, it's the northern tribe versus Judah. Israel is in uh, really a pattern of disobedience uh, to the God of heaven because they no longer are following his instructions of worship. Now, there were people, obviously, in the northern kingdom that were obedient. And I think even as we go through this process today, um, we will see... It just startled me. I see Steve Nelson walking in. Welcome, Steve. Good to see you. Um, and um, we see uh, in the pattern today, as God brings judgment, uh, I think it's, it stands to reason that there are going to be obedient Jews in the northern kingdom that would find their way migrating to the southern kingdom. Uh, we'll be going through a little timeline of where we are today in the lesson, but this is probably going to be a process that happens over, over some time. Now, Amos is who we're studying today. Amos sits right here under Jeroboam 2. Israel is at the very pinnacle of their wealth and security politically at this time. And because of that, um, when they're not under suppression, uh, they tend to ignore God's laws. Now, does that sound familiar? Um, you know, I know a lot of people, we're, we're in a time in the United States, and we don't like the time we're in in the United States. We don't like to see the political issues and these things come on, but we've got to accept them by faith that that's part of God's plan, and we don't know down the road how God will use that to bring people to himself, maybe our offspring and, our, and, and uh, those who come after us. So... Uh, God has a plan and all that, but Amos, you can see Hosea, who we went through there in Sunday school class, had a long uh, prophecy. Amos was shorter. Jonah was just before him. So it kind of gives you an idea of where he is in the timeline. Coming up, we see Micah, who will be a contemporary that Wayne will have. Is that correct? You're going to do Micah? Yeah. And we see Pastor preach through about half of Isaiah, and those are all contemporaries. So they deal with some of the same issues. Now, the time that we're, we're talking about here with Amos is uh, the, the time frame that he's writing on is, is right around 755 B.C. 755 B.C. What was the year when the northern kingdom went into exile? Pardon? 722. Good girl. And... Uh, uh, 722, I, I'm, I'm kind of a fanatic sometimes on dates, you know, maybe more than I should be. But 722 is when they went into Assyrian captivity. And I know if you look that up, you're going to see a lot of different dates. I pretty much go by the old dating process that I learned from Doug Bookman when I was at Pillsbury. So you're looking at about 30 years before the exile that Amos is writing and warning Israel... And the book of Amos is a book of, uh, uh, that most would say it would be a, a, a book that encompasses uh, uh, God's judgment on the, on the nations. We have eight nations that we are talking about here. Six of them we went through. We'll do a quick review of them. But there's eight nations that God is bringing judgment on. And there's a repetitive theme that we'll look at in a minute that goes through those judgments. And with the judgment that he's pronouncing uh, on these nations, it includes Judah and it includes Israel. But there's quite a difference, as we see, we'll see today, on what God pronounces on, pronounces on those nations. And the reason for the judgments uh, are an issue of, of justice and how they have treated um, they're uh, the, the people. So God goes through a process here. And Amos, the name Amos means burden or burden bearer. So that's, that's kind of a, it's kind of a neat thing when you see these names and what they mean and how God has used them. But he's a burden bearer. 
for the nation of uh, Israel. He was uh, from Tekoa. Um, we'll take a quick look here. Jerusalem is, is uh, located here, and he's from just south of here. Now, that always interests me. Why would God bring uh, a prophet from the southern kingdom to pronounce judgment on the northern kingdom? Now, Hosea, he was from the northern kingdom, and God used him in a way and used his family in a way to, to bring judgment. Now, Amos is from the southern kingdom, a complete, complete stranger, and as he comes up to the northern kingdom to preach, uh, the thinking is this is where he starts, the capital of the northern kingdom, Samaria. And that he's preaching there. So if you can imagine in your own mind uh, a person that is, is a foreigner of, of sorts, he's a Jew, but he's a foreigner, he comes out of the southern kingdom. There's this great division that's been there now for a lot of years, since around 920 B.C., the split came, and now we're at 755 B.C. And uh, uh, he comes up to the north to, to camp himself in the capital of the northern kingdom, Samaria, and brings judgment, a message of judgment on that kingdom. And you can imagine how, uh, to me, how hard that would have been for him to do that, not knowing what the response is going to be or how the response is going to be carried out. And for the people up there to hear this, from what they would view as a foreigner. I've always found that interesting. And he was a sheep herder, and as we talked, the first lesson we went through, and Wayne brought up also, he was really a sheep breeder. He was kind of an expert in this field. So he was more than just a normal farmer. And the date that we see here in Amos chapter 1, verse 1, says that it was two years before the earthquake. It was a time when Uzziah was king of, uh, of Judah and Jeroboam was king of, of uh, and we, we saw that already a little bit, but uh, Josiah, or, or Jeroboam up there, and then Uzziah, you can see, is the southern kingdom king. And that's, the, that's how they mark uh, the date of, of uh, when this took place. Now, if you go to, to uh, uh, Zechariah 14.5, which Zechariah now is writing in 525 B.C., so 230 years later, and he mentions this, very same thing. So the feeling is that this earthquake was a, a rather remarkable earthquake, and that took place right around that 755 B.C. that we uh, already pointed out. So that's, that's kind of how we have the marker of when this was written. written. Um, politically, as I said before, and uh, there was... There was Complete peace, there's prosperity. Uh, it's kind of interesting because the, the, the elephant in the room would be Assyria, which is not shown on this map. That's further up to upper right. But um, what took place in Assyria under Jonah's ministry that was kind of unique? Nineveh. Nineveh. Um, um, uh, God spared Nineveh. Jonah didn't like that. That's why he wasn't going to go up there, because he knew God would spare him if they repented. And God's grace extended to Nineveh. That's probably why Assyria has pretty well left the northern Israel alone, because that was quite a, 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 a surprise happening in Nineveh for the, the, the whole city to repent and choose to follow the God of Israel. So... Uh, you know, it's funny how God works those things and how things happen. Yes. In Assyria. It would be off the chart. You see Damascus up there. That's part of Syria. Assyria would be up uh, over to the right and up. Yeah, right. No, I, I should have had the other map up there with that on there, but uh, I, I failed to do that. So anyway... We see, we see Assyria, the, the, the large nation, the powerful nation, pretty well leaving this area alone at that time. And that's going to be even more interesting as we see the judgment that's pronounced by Amos. So there's two primary sins um, that took place in Israel that God is going to judge, and we're going to see in, in his uh, statements today. And one is the absence of true and proper worship. Now, we went through that uh, in the first chapter. We went through that in Hosea. 
and the fact that they were now dualistic in their worship. Excuse me. They not only are worshiping the God of, of uh, the Jehovah, but they're worshiping the God of Baal. And it got to the point that when you got to certain cities, uh, and one of them would be Samaria, um, and Bethel down below there, which was a, a, a point right between the two nations, so it was kind of like putting it right out in Judah's face, that they were dual worship. So when they came to worship, they had the calves there of Baal, and they also had what they would, what they would call an altar of Jehovah, the God of heaven. But they are worshiping both, and as, as typical, as generations go on, pretty soon everybody saw them as one and the same. And they meshed them together with all the temple prostitution and stuff like that that took place with, the, with Baal worship. So that was one. The other was a lack of justice. They were rejecting the prophet's message. And when they rejected the prophet's message, they also rejected justice. So when you had the wealthy, and we'll see that as we get into the lesson a little bit, we have the wealth of some people taking complete advantage of those who were poor or downtrodden. And uh, that was one of the reasons that God brought judgment on them. And uh, divine judgment will come, but because of God's covenant with uh, Abraham. Now, what kind of a covenant was the covenant with Abraham that we've said? Unilateral. Who said that? Oh, there. Um, Carrie, thank you. It's a unilateral covenant. So, as Abraham was put to sleep, God divides the animals and lays them in, in like, like on these tables or down these tables, and he alone walks through and makes the covenant with Abraham. So, it's a covenant that is not based on anything that Abraham does. It's based totally on God's grace. So as we go through the book of Amos here today, and we see, you know, we see because of that, there's always a remnant of Israel that's protected, that God protects. So as we go through the lesson today, there's, there's a couple things I want you to think about as we go through. These things that we see in Amos, how do we, how do we bridge that to us today as Christians in the local church, in a different dispensation, this is under the law, we're under grace. How do we bridge those things? How do we, how do we make those things come, become real to us? Because as we read the Bible, every word in the Bible was written for everybody. So when we read Genesis, there should be applications we can make. And as we go through these difficult, I, at least I call them difficult books, of the minor prophets, there's things there that we should be able to bridge and, and bring into our life that would be helpful in our spiritual walk. So, with that review in mind, we've already talked uh, about the six nations that uh, judgment is pronounced. So let's do a real quick review on them. And then we're going to get into uh, uh, the oracles to Judah and Israel. So God's bringing... War or oracles, if you will, against the nations. Look in, in Amos chapter 1. I'm going to ask some questions, so, so um, uh, think with me, please. It says, the Lord roars from Zion in verse 2. So the Lord is roaring these judgments from Jerusalem. And he's bringing these oracles of war against the nations. And he says, thus says the Lord. Now that's a, that's a, a, word, that's a line that's going to be repeated with every one of the eight nations. Thus says the Lord. For three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Now, what did we say that meant when we talk about the, 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 the three and the four? Three transgressions and four. What's, what, what's the meaning there? Wayne. Right. So, it's like if you have a cup here, and I fill that cup, it's full. That's the three transgressions. The four would be running over. In other words, they're, they're innumerable. Uh, God, God's not even counting them individually. It's the transgressions have run rampant on the nations of the world at that time. Now, where would Damascus, what would that represent? In the upper right-hand 
corner there. That would represent Syria. So he's, in these first three judgments, he's naming cities. And then he goes to countries. But the cities are the large city that would represent the nation. So he says, for Syria, for Damascus, I will not revoke the punishment. Then he goes on in verse 6. Follow with me. Thus says the Lord. Again, three transgressions and four against uh, Gaza. Who would that be? Philistines. So these, except for Syria, it's not named, but it's up there. The nations are up here that he's going to be talking about. He's got Syria. He's got uh, Philistia. He's got uh, uh, Phoenicia. He'll, he'll name Tyre, but that's in Phoenicia. That was the leading city of Tyre. And uh, then you've got Edom. You've got Moab. You've got Ammon. Those are the six nations that we covered in the first lesson. And he goes on and says that about each one. So if you, if you go on in chapter 1 of me, we get to, to verse 9. Thus says the Lord. And now he's addressing Tyre and the nation of uh, Phoenicia. I will not revoke the judgment or the punishment. And he, there's one other word in there that, that uh, caught my eye. is You did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. They made a covenant with David when David was king. And of course, a lot of the, the, the wood and supplies to build uh, uh, his house and to build the, the temple and so on came from Tyre. And there was, a, there was a, an agreement that was made. Well, they broke that agreement. They broke the covenant. Now think about that in our own lives. They broke the covenant that they had made with God. Pastors mentioned many times, I'll just throw this in for, for a thought, when, when we make a promise to God, that's a covenant promise. If we don't follow through with it, what have we done? We broke the covenant. We broke the covenant. And God is a covenant-keeping God. And then we go on to verse uh, 11. It says, to Edom, I will not revoke the punishment. Who was Edom? Esau, the brother of Jacob. And Esau... Uh, never forgave Jacob. Now, I know they had a coming together uh, as Jacob came back down into the area of Bethel and so on, but the, 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 the hatred and despise that they had, that Edom had or Esau had towards his brother, has carried on through the Edomites. And then we go on, and thus says the Lord in verse 13, and now he's saying, with the Ammonites, I will not revoke the punishment. Somebody different now. Who are the Ammonites? Okay, Lot's descendants. Remember the, the incestuous uh, uh, relationship he had with his daughters? And uh, we have all of that Ammon and Moabites. The Ammonites and the Moabites. Now, the Moabites, which would be in chapter 2 and verse 1, I will not revoke the punishment. Remember we talked about the Moabites uh, were horrific people that uh, they would, on Transjordan, and we have the Jordan River that goes from the Sea of Galilee down, and the nation of Israel originally were supposed to all be over here. But there were those that chose to stay on the Transjordan side, and the Moabites would attack them, and they were brutal. Uh, they did things that... Uh, uh, were unheard of amongst other people. And one of those was, as they killed people, they would take the bones, they'd grind those bones up, and they'd use the bones for mortar to build their cities and their strongholds. And it was just another, another way that they kind of stick that out in the face of the people. So the Moabites were a brutal people. And God pronounces a judgment here, and he said, I will not revoke it. So that brings us to today. Let's take a look at Judah in verses 4 and 5. Of chapter 2. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not revoke punishment, the punishment, because they have rejected the law of the Lord, they have not kept his statutes, but their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. I, so I will send a fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the stronghold of Jerusalem. So we hear, see here that there's a direct refusal by Judah to obey the instructions in the Torah, as well as, as they were uh, disobeying uh, their covenant responsibilities. So if, you know, we're not going to take the time to go there, but if we went to Deuteronomy 8, 
Um, the Jewish people, would you agree with me that the Jewish people in general understood the Pentateuch, the first five books? That was part of their raising that, where they'd memorized the Pentateuch, the first five books of the law. And so they understood that, and yet we see here that Judah is, is uh, chose to, to turn against that. Now, we, you notice here that Judah, the judgment on Judah is very short. The judgment on Israel is long. And I think there's a reason for that, because of what God has planned going forward. But in Deuteronomy chapter 8, if you want to look at that sometime, you can. There's instructions following the giving of the Ten Commandments uh, through Moses. One was, in verse 5, Know in your heart that as man disciples, or, uh, disciples his son, the Lord your God will, pardon me, disciplines his son, the Lord your God will discipline you. So there was an understanding that just to, like we as parents, uh, as we've, we discipline our children for a purpose of correcting them and bringing them into a proper understanding of right and wrong, uh, just as that was, so God is going to discipline you as adults when you break those rules. And that was understood. And that's an important thing here when we take a look at a, a book that, that's uh, bringing judgment like this upon God's people. Uh, this was not suddenly just something that just came out of, the, out of the sky. This was something they understood. Secondly, in verse 11, it says, Take care, lest you forget the Lord. Now, we already talked about what happened in, in uh, the northern kingdom in, in Israel. Most of this book is written, of course, to Israel. But, excuse me, if you remember, when we went through Hosea, what happened in, in uh, chapter 4, verse 17? Hosea's uh, uh, prophesying against Israel, but suddenly he turns his bony finger and he points south to Judah and he says, Ephraim is joined to idols, leave him alone. In other words, quit your relationships with your brethren of Israel and separate yourself as brethren of Judah. And the warning was given by Hosea. Well, it's somewhat the same thing here with Amos. He is, he is uh, prophesying against Israel, but he takes these two verses for Judah and he reminds them, of the Torah. And part of that is, don't forget the Lord. Israel has forgotten the Lord. The Lord and Baal are, are like one to them. And they're not worshiping the one true God. Then in verse 20 of uh, Deuteronomy chapter 8, it says, Like the nation that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish, because you do not obey the Lord your God. And that all started, as we had earlier there, with Jeroboam and Rehoboam. When Jeroboam uh, took the nor ten northern tribes, and he took them away from uh, the instruction that God had given them concerning Jerusalem, he says, we can do all that up here. We don't have to make that long march down there. And uh, when he did that, he put himself in disobedience, and he's warning Judah about the same thing. The same thing's going to happen to you. So there's a judgment that's going to come. Now, it says... Uh, that I will send a fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. What, how was that fulfilled? Somebody different now. Somebody a little different. How was that fulfilled? When Judah was destroyed. When did that happen? That happened? Pardon? Uh, no, no. When was Judah, as a nation, destroyed? That judgment that was brought down, they burned down their strongholds. Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. Now, we're 755, like we talked about. That happened in, in three, uh, three waves, six, uh, 605, 594, and 586. In those three waves that Nebuchadnezzar came in from Babylon, the difference was, when Assyria attacks Israel, they disperse them so they can no longer gather together in, in force. They're dispersed. They're gone. That's why people talk about the ten lost tribes. God knows where they are. God knows the descendants. But we know some of them also escaped to Judah. 
So the descendants were always there. There was always a remnant. Remember, we're talking about God's grace along with his judgment. And in his grace, there's always that remnant that God sees fit to preserve. Because he loved this nation. Of all the nations of the world, we'll see that in a little bit, he loved Israel. So when, when Nebuchadnezzar came in, he took all the people. First of all, he took the young wise men like David and uh, 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 pardon me, thank you. I knew I said that wrong. Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He took them for that first wave. They wanted the choice young men, the, the, the smart young men of the nation to be taken. And then they came back again and again, and they finally destroyed the whole thing. But they were preserved as a nation in Babylon. Israel wasn't. Judah was. So we see Judah here specifically, I will send a fire upon you. They were warned. They were warned 130 years before it actually happened. 150 years before it actually happened. But they did not heed that, did they? They did not heed. Even after they saw Israel decimated, they still didn't heed that. So then we go on to Israel. In verse uh, 5, he says, Thus says the Lord, again, that, re, that repetition, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. God's punishment is sure. He will not revoke it. If you have people today that you know that are unsaved, and they're good people, God's not going to revoke the punishment. If they die outside of Christ, they go to hell. So that's the same message we have today in the whole New Testament is what is here. It's just not quite as, as, as succinct as what they name it here. Because he goes on and he says this. Three things in those first eight verses. One was oppression. Um, there was, there was, the, the nation would oppress, would oppress the weak. We'll put it that way. They oppress the weak. He goes on, he says, because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. And my understanding of that, and I got most of this from uh, uh, Gary Smith in the NIV um, book, a textbook. And uh, I appreciated that because it's hard sometimes you read those things and you can, you know, your mind can expand some on what it is, but what are they really talking about? And this is what he would say. He would say that Israel's accusation, there's two accusations from God against Israel. One, they oppressed the weak, which we just read, read, because of their greed. This is at a time when Israel was at its zenith in wealth, and yet the rich... Think about this now as we go through this. Think about our own situation. And the, yet the rich deem it okay to oppress the weak. And they do it in a couple of ways. One is in chapter 6 there was foreclosure. Um, I had a great uncle that was a banker during the Depression down Grand Meadow area. And uh, when the, the Depression hit the farm community, of course these farmers had loans at the bank. And what would he do? If they missed a payment, he'd call the loan, knowing they couldn't pay it off. There was no money. And then he'd take the farm. Then he'd rent the farm back out for what little he could get out of it. And at the end of the Depression, he would take his own finances, and now he'd buy the note on those at a discounted rate. And when, they, when the Depression was all over, he owned a lot of farms down there. But the thing I knew about him when I got to know him later in, in life was uh, he never went back to Grand Meadow or that area. And there were people down there that warned him, don't you ever come back to this area. Why? Because he oppressed those who were weak financially because of circumstances they couldn't control. That's what was happening here. And they would deprive the, the righteous of instead of systematically paying off their small debts, they would call the loan in, and they'd take possession of whatever they had. And in many cases, they made slaves out of them. The second thing was the needy, a pair of sandals. Uh, these people, many times, they would, they, they would, for, for a pair of sandals, they would, they would take these people and they'd sell them into slavery. 
the whole idea is for just a minuscule amount, just for a little of nothing, they'd sell people into slavery. And they, had, they lost all their rights, their human rights, if you will be. So we see here how God hates the oppression of the weak. Secondly, in verse 7, he said, we see the physical abuse that's taking place. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted, a man and his father going to the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. And we see here the, the physical abuse that, that was rampant in the nation of Israel. And it's referenced not necessarily to court proceedings. Now I know the, if you have an NIV Bible, it kind of mentions justice there in court proceedings. Uh, at least the general feeling, as even from an NIV writer here, that that is not probably what it, was, what it was talking about, but it's rather the powerful people are rendering abuse towards those who are weak, depriving them of their no, normal rights. And they had, no, they had no problem with that. Do we see that in our country today? Just no value of life. And when these people fell into worship of Baal, they lost all value of life. They go to Baal worship. They have the temple prostitutes. The temple prostitutes would have babies. The babies would be offered to, the, to Moloch and destroyed. And it got to the point where some people would bring their own infants and offer them to Moloch. The drums would pound so loud because they didn't want to hear the babies scream as they lay them in the fire. Alive. There was just, they had lost any real comprehension of the value of human life. The fact that you can look around here, and I can look at Jim, or I can look at, at Eric, and I can look at Ryan, and I can look at them. They all three look different. But they're all made in the image of God. And that's what we need to see is the value of human life, that we are made in the image of God. They lost that. And that's being lost in our world, isn't it? And in, in uh, the second part there of uh, 7b, this, the sexual abuse there was probably of a servant woman who was used for their own pleasure, and both the father and the sons would go in and use, use her for their own pleasure. Again, no value. There's no value given to that, that woman as a, as a living human being made in the image of God. Have we lost that? Verse 8 talks about the wealthy people. And they, they'll collect the very, the very last thing. The, they exploit the destitute. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. In the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Anybody know what that's talking about when it says the garments that have been taken in pledge? My understanding is, and pastors mentioned this, the outer garment was a garment that was for warmth. When the evenings get cold, the, the difference in the temperatures from day to evenings. And the outer garments would, would be something that would be uh, considered proper covering. And what the wealthy were doing is they were taking that outer garment and they were taking that from these people as a pledge to pay back a loan. Now what, is, what does the Old Testament talk about? What does it say in uh, Exodus 22 and Deuteronomy 24? It'll, pardon? Yes. No, I was, I was going to ask it a little more, but you answer it. Go ahead. Right. You have to give it back to them in the evening for a, for a warmth covering. They weren't doing that. Instead, they were taking these garments and they were actually laying them down. If they'd go to a festival or they'd go to the altar uh, or whatever they do, they'd lay those down on the ground. They'd use it for their own comfort. Again, absolutely no... Uh, no consideration for people who were destitute and what they had. And they were just, they were just exploiting that. The second one in verse uh, nine, 9 and 12, 9 through 12 here, yet it was I. Now God is coming back and he's saying, this is what you people have been doing. You oppressed the weak. You gave physical abuse to people who were made in my image. And you exploit the destitute. God has always had a tender heart for those who are poor or in any way destitute. Now, 
there's the other side of that, I understand. If you're not willing to work and you're just, you're just kind of relying on the, the, the gifts of the government, et cetera, et cetera, um, that's a different thing. The, the, then they're, then you're, you're in sin. But here he's talking about people who were trying to do what they knew to do, that, that they were rightfully worshiping God, and yet because of power and wealth, they're being taken advantage of. And this is what Amos is preaching against. And God turns that around now and he says, now who is the power? Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and it was as strong as the oaks. And what happened there? When did this take place? When did this take place? Okay. First of all, who was still in rule when the 12 spies went in? Moses. There was 12 spies that went in. They came back out. Joshua and Caleb were the only two. And at first I thought, I wonder if one of them is the tribe of Judah and one is the tribe of, of, uh, of Benjamin, because that's the two, the two listed in the southern, but they're not. One was of Ephraim and one was of Judah. So that kind of blew my thought process there. But these two, these two came back and said, we can do this because God has given us the country. But the people, the spies that went in, they saw these Amorites, these huge people, powerful people. And he said, who destroyed them? It was God who destroyed them. God went before them. God destroyed the Amorites. Uh, I destroyed the fruit above and the roots beneath. In other words, the picture being there, he not only took the tree down, he took the feet out from the Amorites. He completely destroyed them. Completely destroyed them. Verse 10, also was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. It was I that did that, God said. The walls of Jericho didn't crumble because of your might. They crumbled because of God's might. And it was God who was in control. I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord. Now we see another phrase coming in. Declares the Lord. God it was. Now what, what was the, the Nazarite? They were God's chosen people. They are separated for a purpose. What were the three things that the Nazarite uh, to, to, for a Nazarite vow. The word vow means wonder. So the Nazarite was something special. They were somebody special. And they, were, they stood out because of three things. Anybody remember what they were? I believe that's in Numbers chapter, nine, or chapter 6. They didn't cut their hair. Now that's an interesting one. Uh, back in the 60s, when I grew up... Uh, the hippies had the long hair. Why? Because they wanted to distinguish themselves versus the, the general public. They wanted to distinguish themselves as rebellious. And here, the Nazarite is not to cut his hair, but it's so that people can single, single them out. They're identifiable as people that God had separated for a purpose. What else? Okay. No, no, uh, no wine, I'll take that here. No touching dead bodies. So they were to separate themselves in these three areas, which would be very distinct to the people around them. So what did Israel do? Verse 12, you made the Nazarites drink wine. You commanded the, and commanded the prophets, saying, you shall not prophesy. Now, think about this. These are God's chosen people. They are called out for a purpose. Does God call people out for a purpose today for his service? Yeah? What do we, what do we call them today? Pastors. Teachers. Not me now. Pastor teachers. Uh, evangelists. I'm going to put evangelists in there. And they're people that God has set aside for a purpose. Now, I'm not going to pretend that they're kings or that they're apostles or prophets, but what is the twofold purpose of a prophet? They did two things. What was it? We've reviewed that before. Forthtelling and foretelling. 
preaching forth the word of God that is already there and foretelling the future, as he's doing here, foretelling the future, and they were special people that God called for that purpose. Well, do we have prophets today? Well, in the sense of foretelling, some would say yes. I have no problem with that. But prophets, as we know in the Old Testament, are non-existent. Apostles, as we know in the New Testament, are non-existent. But God still has people that he calls aside and calls out from among us for a purpose. And that purpose is to deliver the word of God. They're gifted in the manner of leadership. And that's why I think it's so important that we always give the benefit of the doubt. Unless it absolutely goes contrary to the word of God. We give the benefit of the doubt to our leaders as they lead us. And as they present to us the word of God. That's, I think that's very important because as we see here, uh, God holds that in high value. And you know what? He still holds it in high value today. The same as if he finds, if we find a leader that has, has uh, compromised himself in immorality or whatever, and they're set aside, they're placed out of the realm of being that pastor, and it's the local church's responsibility to do that as God leads. But God holds leadership in high value, and he holds it in high value within the confines of local churches just like this. It's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing. So verses 13 through 16 are the punishment. He doesn't mention the judgment on kings and fortified cities like he did in the, in the first six nations. No, here he talks rather about the people. God removes the source of the people's security. In those last verses, Behold, I'll press you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves presses down. Flight shall perish from the swift. Can't run anymore. The strong shall not retain his strength, nor shall the mighty save his life. You're not going to save your life by your own power. He who handles the bow shall not stand. He who is swift of foot shall not save himself. Nor shall he who rides the horse save his life. And he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. So, as we sum this up, the punishment here is, is God's punishment. He is going to remove the security of the, of the nation of Israel, which would be their army. He's going to remove that. He's going to bring confusion and he's going to bring a collapse that's going to take place that even the people who try to escape will not be able to escape. God knows where they are, just like God knows where we are. So as we look at this book of judgment, we also look at this book in view of the grace of God. Now real quick, in just a couple of minutes, does anybody have anything that they thought of? How do you bridge this and how do you apply it in our, in our day and age, in the, in the local church? Oh, sure. Yes, absolutely. And I believe... I, I, and I believe a lot of those people escaped to Judah because there's where they're supposed to worship, at Jerusalem. So that happened there. How do we bridge that to us today in the, in the church? How do, we, how do we bridge this? Anybody have a thought or idea? Yeah, my, uh, Ben. Uh, God's serious about sin would be one, one way to look at it. And I uh, Yep. So God's serious about sin. Anybody else? What else? What were the things that he was really hammering on here to Israel? They what? They oppressed? Pardon? They, they oppressed the poor people. So does the church have a place in that today? I think so. I think, uh, uh, I think in this church, as we look at uh, Ukraine, as we look at South Africa, Zimbabwe, places like this, God wants us to be concerned about the poor, and that starts right here in our midst. Anything else, real quick, and then we're done. Doug.
Yes. And God always judges within the confines of the revelation that's been provided. Now, we know that the, the Bible, the whole text, we have that. So we have 100% of God's revelation available to us. Now, does that may mean that these people back here, well, they, they, they missed out on some revelation, so that's God's fault. No. They had, they had all the revelation they needed to do everything that God required of them. And his judgment was always based on his revelation. We have the same thing today. We are, we are going to be judged by God based on the revelation that we have. And a lot of it's going to be attitudes. We, we talked a little bit, even, even, uh, even, even attitudes within leadership. Even attitudes within uh, uh, those who are wealthy and their attitude towards uh, the poor. All these things are going to come to judgment. And so when we read the Old Testament, we want to, without going off on some rabbit trail that takes us out in the wilderness, we want to try to bridge the principles of what God is teaching there into where we are today in the local Now, at least for me, I would not be what they call a covenant theologian. I'd be a dispensationalist. God deals with different people in different time frames. And we're in the church age. So God's dealing differently with us. We are not Israel. We are not Old Testament Israel transferred into the church. That, that's not at all who we are. We are the Gentiles and the Jews. There's no difference between the Jew and the Gentile. The same Lord overall is rich unto all who call upon him. So we've got to be careful to remember who we are. But at the same time, we want to try to bridge these things from the Old Testament into a New Testament understanding. Pastor does a very good job of that when he preaches, when he's going through Isaiah. And at the end, he'd, he'd make application for us to help our, our sanctification. Okay, thank you for your attention.